Hello everyone, Camille here, one of your Starry Indecisive hosts. I'm so excited for today's episode. I'm speaking with one of the authors from volume 27 of the Appeal Law Journal coming out this March 2022, Camus Assery. Her paper, which we will be discussing, is about the myth of the ideal victim. And before we dive into our discussion, I want to give listeners a content warning that we will be discussing sexual assault and intimate partner violence in this episode. Starry and Decisis podcast is recorded at the CFUV studios located on unceded Coast Salish territories of the Lekwungen, Songhees, and Wasanich peoples. As uninvited guests, we acknowledge the ongoing harm that the University of Victoria, Faculty of Law, and practice of law continues to enact on Indigenous communities and how these institutions continue to benefit from the colonization and the taking of land and the ongoing active roles in colonization. Starry and Decisis is committed to amplifying Indigenous and marginalized stories and perspectives to disrupt this reality and create a more just and bright future for all. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, so today on Starry and Decisis, I'm joined by Camus Usery. Usery. I always pronounce it Usery in my head. So Camus Usery. Camus, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm in my second year in the UVic JD program, and I'm uh, yeah, really excited to be on the podcast with Camille today. Nice. Okay, so you wrote a paper for the Appeal Law Journal, and that's what brought us here together today. What's the title of your paper? Okay, the title of my paper is The Myth of the Ideal Victim, Combating Misconceptions of Expected Demeanor in Sexual Assault Survivors. That's great. Uh, so what inspired you to write this paper? Yeah, um, criminal sexual assault law has always been an interest of mine. Um, I volunteered for several years with the Victoria Sexual Assault uh, Center, supporting survivors kind of in the immediate aftermath of a sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say on that note that my views are my own and not theirs. Um, and I think this is super important and rewarding work. And I really enjoyed it, but my role there has been kind of limited to just a few hours with survivors while they navigate a medical visit or filing a police report. Um, And I often left those calls kind of wondering what their experience would be like going forward. Um, So that was a big part of my decision to go to law school and kind of piqued my interest for this paper as well. Um, Just learning about how to make the justice system more accessible for people who've experienced trauma such as a sexual assault. So that kind of directed my focus for the paper and yeah, and a big part of my reason for going to law school. Wow, that's a that's a beautiful inspiration to come to law school. Very important to to do that good work. So can you tell us what is the ideal victim myth? For sure. So um, the ideal victim myth is really a problematic concept that only a certain type of woman is worthy of belief when reporting a sexual assault. Um, so according to this myth, it's only well-dra- well-dressed, middle-class, um, sexually inexperienced women who are assaulted and only by strangers. Um, This myth is also referred to as a real or genuine or expected victim or a good witness. So you might have heard it by those names as well. Um, And it also encompasses how sexual assault survivors are kind of supposed to behave when they're telling their story. So they should be able to remember exactly what happened. Um, They should be upset but not overly emotional, maybe a little tearful. Their testimony should be consistent no matter what tactics uh, defense counsel uses to try and poke holes in their story. 
Um, but then data on sexual assault shows us that this is really not at all true. Um, anyone can be sexually assaulted. The majority of sexual assault survivors are assaulted by someone they know. And um, the risk is actually higher in marginalized communities or people with diverse sexual orientations. Um, so if a sexual assault survivor doesn't fit kind of the narrow criteria that this myth encompasses, they may feel like their story is not as believed um, when they're reporting. Um, so for example, if someone was sexually assaulted by their spouse or someone they brought home after a date, um, they may kind of feel like they're facing more extensive questioning about what happened than someone who was just randomly sexually assaulted by a stranger. Um, and personally, I think this myth kind of stems from a lack of understanding of consent. Um, the law is really clear that it's a yes that's needed to provide consent, but a lot of people think it's still just kind of a lack of a no. So mm -hmm. if you bring someone home after a date or if you are married to them, it doesn't mean you've consented to sexual activity, but there's a lot of misconceptions around that. How is the ideal victim myth used? Yeah, um, this myth kind of comes into play at all stages of a survivor's um, interaction with the justice system. So it might show up when they first report, if they feel their story is not being believed um, when they file a police report. It may lead to charges not being forwarded to Crown or there being a lack of information due to kind of lack of detail in an interview to approve charges. Um, and it may even mean they don't report in the first place if they tell a friend or family member what happened and the friend or family member is affected by that myth and kind of makes them doubt whether what happened to them is actually sexual assault. Um, but if the survivor does make it to the courtroom, which is what my paper focuses on, then that myth can kind of come down to the difference between a conviction and an acquittal if it casts any doubt on the survivor's credibility while they're giving testimony. So it impacts the, the credibility. What can you tell us about the survivors of sexual assault and credibility? Yeah, um, sexual assault survivors' credibility is often kind of the paramount, um, most important piece of, of the sexual assault trial. Um, so the standard of proof in criminal law is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is really important um, because it's important to maintain the presumption of innocence. So that standard is there for good reason. Um, but the tricky part about sexual assault trials is there's often only two accounts of what happened from the survivor and the accused, and they definitely won't have the same version of events. So that's where um, the importance of credibility comes in. So if a judge or jury doubts the credibility of a survivor, then they often can't be certain beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused committed the sexual assault um, if there's not enough other evidence to support the survivor's version of events. So what should we know about the myth of the ideal victim and how it's used in the courtroom? Um, well, first of all, people think that we're better at detecting lies than we actually are. So that can lead us to over-rely on someone's demeanor to determine whether they're a credible witness or whether they're telling the truth, basically. So if we think that a sexual assault survivor is supposed to behave a certain way based on this myth, um, for example, they should be professional and consistent, they should be a little bit upset but still able to remember what happened, and then they don't behave that way, a trier of fact might think they're being dishonest when actually their behavior is just consistent with someone who's experienced trauma. Um, for example, the paper talks about a mock jury study where a witness who is expressionless while they were testifying um, was kind of erroneously characterized as being cold or calculating or a good actor by these mock jurors. So there is a lot of caution against over-reliance on demeanor in the courtroom, but we can see from mock jury trials and from judgments that have been overturned on appeal that despite this, um, there is still sometimes an overuse on demeanor when assessing credibility in the courtroom. And how does trauma impact demeanor? Well, trauma impacts their brain in a variety of ways, um, both long-term 
and short term. And my paper goes into a bit more detail on exactly what areas of the brain are affected and how, but the short version is the brain kind of tries to cushion us from trauma. Um, and that's a really handy feature, um, but it can affect kind of how we remember a traumatic event and how we express ourselves when talking about it afterwards. It doesn't really do any favors when um, assessing someone's demeanor and how that supports their credibility in the courtroom. So uh, there's a variety of ways that trauma can manifest during testimony, but some really common ones are a survivor being totally expressionless or having like a flat affect while they testify. And this is because they're numbing or emotionally detaching from the process of recounting that traumatic event. Um, they may be irritable about the personal questions being asked or have mood swings while they're on the stand. They may go from feeling okay to just feeling overwhelmed all of a sudden um, and may have difficulty concentrating. And so all of these behaviors, like I said, are the brain's way of trying to protect itself, um, but they can come across similarly to the behavior of someone who's being dishonest or uncertain and then have a negative impact on that credibility assessment. So it seems like this myth really is quite prejudicial against survivors of sexual assault and and impacts their access to justice. What is the duty of lawyers and judges in this situation? Yeah, well, I think one of the really great things about the legal profession is just the huge diversity and backgrounds between lawyers and judges, and they all have certain um, strengths in certain areas of law, and that really contributes to the bar and the bench, but it also means there's no way someone can be an expert in every area of law, and we have a lot to learn from one another. Um, but I think that being said, the importance of learning how trauma affects a witness is important, not just for the kind of narrow field of criminal sexual assault trials, but almost every field of law because um, it comes up just so much. And there's so much research out there on the topic. Um, but there's lots of kind of quick and easy ways to learn too, like the Trauma-Informed Lawyer podcast by Myrna McCallum is a really good one. Um, and there are some out there that count towards CPD credits as well. Um, but this learning is especially important when the outcome of a trial could depend on the level of understanding that a lawyer or judge has on how trauma can impact demeanor. And the Supreme Court has now ruled um, in 2018 in R and ARJD that relying on stereotypical reasoning when assessing the credibility of a sexual assault survivor is an error of law. And we do have an ethical responsibility in the legal profession to keep updated on changes and practices and knowledge as well. So it's just really important to, to keep learning on this topic. And so what would you say to folks, because there is also an ethical duty to provide a zealous a defense. So what would you say to folks who argue on behalf of defense counsel that they're doing their duty in defending their client? Yeah, I think this is a great question. Um, and I do think the presumption of, presumption of innocence is such a critical part of our justice system. So it's been really interesting, actually, to think uh, while I'm writing this paper about what that balance is. Um, and yeah, maintaining the right to a fair trial while not being dismissive of a survivor's complaints. Um, I think one thing I want to point out is the rate of false reports is really low. And I don't think we always remember that. Um, it's not fun to file a police report. It's not fun to go to court and have to retell that story in front of a bunch of strangers um, and likely the person who sexually assaulted you as well and then have their defense lawyer try to rip the story apart. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind, but I think also the test of credibility is such an important part of the process. And that's why I've kind of tried to focus the paper on how to support survivors through the trial process to prevent trauma symptoms from affecting credibility to the same extent in the first place. Um, for example, the Crown can apply to the judge to have the survivor testify behind a screen or in a different room so they don't have to see the accused. 
and a lawyer can be appointed so the accused is not cross-examining the survivor themselves. Um, but I think what is really important here is that both uh, the Crown and the judge recognize which questions are fair game and which questions cross the line into um, kind of perpetuating that myth of the ideal victim. Um, so I definitely agree that defense lawyers are responsible for making sure their client has a fair trial. Um, but I think it's also important that the Crown and judge can step in when the trial is kind of becoming unfair in the other direction and, and just to protect that balance. Mm-hmm. And so my next question is about kind of expertise and knowledge. Where there's a trial that has a jury, the you know, the jury is usually our peers who are just folks without the specialized knowledge of individuals who've gone through law school and who've gone on to become judges. As law students, we take years of schooling that that includes training in evidentiary law and laws of evidence. Do you think juries are are well equipped? to navigate the intricacies involved in disregarding heard testimony with regards to credibility and and reputation that are informed by the myth of the ideal victim? Yeah, I think handling evidence is definitely a specialized skill. Um, There's a reason evidence is a tough class, and I know my evidence prof um, really made sure we understood the importance of not taking on cases beyond our skill set when we're starting out and what the consequences of that are. So I can definitely see the argument that a jury is maybe not in the best place to to handle those tough decisions. Um, But I think that's where good jury instructions come in. And uh, my paper does refer to some of the model jury instructions that are put out, which um, provide a really excellent plain language example of how to support juries in navigating these difficult decisions. Um, But these instructions are just a template. So I think a judge who has a really strong understanding of the effects of trauma on demeanor um, can build on these instructions in a way that maintains the fairness to the accused that's so important, but that also helps the jury understand that there is no ideal victim and everyone responds to trauma differently. And I think it's really important to help them understand why they shouldn't over-rely on demeanor and why they shouldn't be placing too much weight on any lines of questioning that the defense asks that are designed to perpetuate that myth. And I think understanding that why can really help someone remember um, something in a high-stakes situation, such as, you know, a jury trial, and it just kind of helps to give that context. And that is shown to be effective through model jury, model jury studies. Um, Jurors who had instructions such as these attributed some behaviors to the effects of trauma that they previously thought indicated dishonesty. So just giving judges the opportunity to learn more about how trauma affects demeanor and how they can help share this knowledge in a really impartial way with juries is is super important. Yeah, that's great. And what changes would you like to see? Yeah, I think it would be amazing if the criminal code eventually recognized this myth the way it's done with the twin myths, um, which are, well, it's now prohibited to rely on a complainant's sexual history to imply that either they're more likely to have consented or they're less worthy of belief. Um, The common law does recognize that relying on a stereotype of how a sexual assault survivor is expected to act when assessing their credibility is an error of law, Um, but it would be great to see this codified by the legislature too. But I did intentionally leave this idea out of my paper because I think it shifts the focus away from all the options we already have available, um, not only to prevent reliance on this myth, but also to help survivors feel more supported throughout the court process, which changing the law won't necessarily do. Um, So I think we really just need to shift our focus to the ways that survivors can be supported in preparing for trial um, in the courtroom, and then also how we can help ensure that they have the resources they need outside the justice system that we can't really provide as 
um, as legal professionals, such as counseling, um, to ensure that they aren't re-experiencing all that trauma through the courtroom process. This is not a listed question, but I know the Sexual Assault Center just lost their long-term counseling, so that must be another impact of, like, barrier in accessing support for sexual assault survivors. Yeah, I mean, I think it just shows the amount of people that are needing to access those services. Like, that's why it's no longer running is just because there is such a backlog of people needing to access those services. But um, there definitely are free counseling resources Mm -hmm. out there. And there's lots of other sexual or support services that the Sexual Assault Center offers. And so I think, um, yeah, it's great to connect with them if you need to and find those resources. But there's definitely more people than there are resources, which is a huge problem and kind of a bigger bigger problem than just the scope of of the paper yeah so there was a recent decision out of the newfoundland court of appeal in rvdr so what did they decide can you give us a little rundown of what they decided and and does it give us a reason for hope in change yeah um this is a very sad case so the accused was acquitted of sexual touching of his young granddaughter uh, while she was between the ages of seven and ten And um, this acquittal came along with one for her three older sisters, um, but those three were not appealed. So we're just focusing on this one case here. Um, And it's not exactly kind of on point about the myth of the ideal victim, um, specifically the impact of trauma on demeanor and as a result credibility, but it does show kind of a shifting attitude of the courts and overturning um, problematic reasoning in sexual assault trials and highlights some realities of trauma and its impact on the trial process. Um, So the Crown's argument on appeal of centered around um, the fact that because the survivor had a positive relationship with the accused and made comments such as being happy to see him that she could not have been sexually assaulted by him so this is what the trial judge held and the crown appealed kind of on those grounds Um, so the court of appeal reiterates reasoning from the supreme court in the case of r and arjd in 2018 that relying on stereotypes of how a victim is expected to act when assessing their credibility is an error of law Uh, so that supreme court case Uh, follows a long line of cases where the Supreme Court has explained the problems of relying on stereotypical reasoning in sexual assault trials and acknowledged the impact of trauma on how survivors behave in the aftermath of a sexual assault, such as Seaboyer, Mills, Yuanchuk, and Didi. Um, So the court in this case, in DR, relies on reasoning from all of those Supreme Court decisions when deciding to send the case back to trial. And Justice Hogue uh, reasoned that the strength of the survivor's relationship with her grandfather wasn't actually the issue for the trial judge to decide, and it had no place in the trial court's reasoning. And she also gives some really great context as to how there's no normal feelings for a survivor to have towards her abuser. Um, So I think this case, for one, provides a really great and helpful summary of all the uh, key Supreme Court cases that discuss improper reliance on stereotypes and uh, the importance of recognizing trauma symptoms in sexual assault cases, and it will be a really helpful jumping-off point for future decisions. I think it also shows that the courts are shifting their tolerance level for these lines of reasoning and standing firm that they're an error of law. And I definitely think it's a huge step in the right direction. And I'm hopeful that if the accused does appeal that the Supreme Court kind of upholds and builds on the stance that they've taken in previous sexual assault decisions. Amazing. I certainly think that it's very hopeful that we stand firm in this, in the decision to not rely on stereotypes. So that's great. Those are all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, thanks, Camille. Pretty quick and tight. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think one thing that I loved about your paper that I didn't know was that there were resources 
available for lawyers and judges already to take positive action in combating stereotypes when dealing with survivors of sexual assault. So, I mean, why not use the resources available? Totally. Yeah, there's so much out there that has been proven, you know, not to bias the impartiality of the trial or anything like that. And so, yeah, why not? (laughs) They're all there. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. So that was my discussion with Camus Assery, a second-year law student at the University of Victoria and the author of The Myth of the Ideal Victim, Combating Misconceptions of Expected Demeanor in Sexual Assault Survivors. I also want to take this opportunity to mention that we are providing resources in the show notes attached to this episode for sexual assault support centers for anyone who, listening to this episode, uh, decides that they would need to reach out and speak to someone um, specifically the ending violence canada website so that's endingviolencecanada.org which has a list of resources geared towards specific needs there's also the vancouver island crisis line that is great and they can be reached at 1-888-494-3888 or survivors can also contact the Victoria Sexual Assault Centre directly at 250-383-3232 or at vsac.ca. And again, these resources will be listed in our show notes. Thanks for tuning in and keep an ear out for our next episode.